Well, <clears throat> most of you are sitting or were sitting quietly with your eyes closed. Maybe wonder whether I should speak at all. <laughs> I assume maybe there was no need. <laughs> it seemed like so peaceful and quiet and Maybe I was projecting on you being completely content and nothing needed except sitting here watching your breath. <clears throat> Can you hear me okay? Okay, so I've been reflecting today about a statement by the Buddha that uh, <clears throat> A wise person, a teacher, establishes others in the in the beauty of the Dharma. Establishes people in the beauty of the Dharma. And so I don't know how to do that except to support people to do this practice. It's through this practice that we get established in the beauty of the Dharma. And where is that beauty to be found? It's to be found in each of us. That each of us, each of you, has capacity, has beauty that waits for you within. It's a kind of very powerful, wonderful message about how the Buddha views human beings. And we see this in many ways that the Buddha has a tremendous respect and appreciation and the value of human beings, the value of their inner life, the potential of it all. He talks about not only having inner beauty, he talks about having um, inner wealth. And one form of inner wealth is what uh, Jill talked about at 2.30, goodwill, metta. It's a very different idea of wealth than what maybe is popularly considered wealth out in the world. That there is beauty to be found here with each of us. Probably that the Buddha's notion of beauty is also very different than what's out there in the popular world. Don't take the popular view of things too seriously. Find your own wealth. Find your own beauty. The Buddha talked about another kind of simile he gave that I love that kind of views people, implies that each of us is special. Is the story of the Buddha, the metaphor he gives of discovering the teaching, discovering the path, the awakening that he, he discovered. And he said, he, he implies he didn't invent it. The path has always been here. It's an ancient path. And he just found it and revealed it, cleared, cleared it for us to walk. But he didn't make it up. And so the simile he uses 
is as of a person who, as a woodworker, lives in the woods, works with wood, maybe, and is in the woods, in the jungle, and comes across traces of an ancient road and clears it a little bit and says, oh, in fact, there's a road here. It's overgrown. And then begins following the traces of that ancient road deeper and deeper into the forest until the person comes to uh, an ancient capital that has also been overgrown and forgotten, like the Mayan cities in Central America. And... um, and then this woods person goes back out and goes to the monarchs of the land and says, hey, there's this beautiful ancient capital at the end of this road. And so they go and clear the road better and better and then they clear the capital and then they move into it, this beautiful place. What I like about this simile is that the Buddha is likened, likens himself to the woods person who goes in the woods and finds the path. Coming out of the woods, who's he coming to tell? Who's, who are the monarchs? Who's the regal royalty? It's all of you. It's all the people he was going to teach. Hey, you. There is in your heart within an ancient path, an ancient way that's been overgrown by a few things. Among other things, it's been overgrown by the hindrances. But if you can just clear this out, there's this beautiful place to live in there, a capital, a hometown, all within, all in your own heart. So this respect, this emphasis on beauty, this emphasis on inner wealth, royalty, this is not what some people expect when they hear Buddhist teachings and saying, it's all suffering, it's all impermanent, it's all not self. Just let go and be ethical. Thank you. (laughs) Sometimes it gets reduced in this kind of simplistic way or gets offered selectively this path and this practice. Or we hear it selectively because of our conditioning and our background. But the amount of emphasis there is on beauty in this tradition that's within, it sometimes gets lost in English translations. There is a... um, popular idea that Buddhism is also about karma and if it's about karma there's good and bad karma. Sometimes the Buddha says that in his, in his language, Pali language, good and bad. But um, sometimes when he's talking about the opposite of bad karma he uses the word beautiful. There's beautiful and there's bad karma. So you get such a different feeling when the emphasis is beauty. Good and, good and bad kind of reminds a lot of people with, of morality and strictness and right and wrong and, 
and what is right and wrong and what is good and bad and am I good or am I bad? Which, where do I fit in this kind of wonderful, difficult and confounding duality of good and bad? But if you say beautiful, there's beautiful actions and there's not so beautiful actions. There's beautiful actions and bad actions. Do the beautiful actions. It kind of has a whole other feeling than being moralistic. There's an aesthetic feeling to it, an affective quality to it that's quite inspiring. When you come across something beautiful, how are you touched? What, is, what moves inside of you in the encounter with beauty? I don't think you have an experience of beauty out there without it somehow shifting and changing something inside of you. Something inside has to resonate. Tune in, feel that, be sensitive to it. What is that place that can recognize beauty? What is that place that goes, ah, look at the sunset, look at the rainbow. I've met people who conventionally, maybe they weren't going to win the beauty pageant. They didn't have that kind of conventional wisdom, uh, beauty, which you know that physical beauty goes through trends. And maybe you're lucky to fit the trend of the year or the, or the decade, but it's kind of like a fragile, fleeting thing. If you what what's beautiful physically, you know, what wins the pageants. But some of the people I meet who I find are most beautiful, there's an integrity to them. Kind of a, kind of an ethical integrity. It just seems to be natural harmonious with their very way of being. Uh, clearly, these people are, are going to speak the truth. There's a feeling that, oh, this person's not going to lie. You're going to feel it. And that's beautiful. And for the Buddha also, this sense of integrity and not harming anyone is part of this fantastic and wonderful beauty that can live in us. And where does that born? Where does that come from? This sense of beauty, this sense of integrity, this sense of kind of of regality, this sense of feeling like there's real value inside. There's something important here, this life of ours. There's a lived life that wants to flow through us. And it's beautiful and it's marvelous. The hindrances muck it up, cover it over. The beautiful similes, metaphors that Jill gave yesterday for sloth and torpor, it's this, you know, this uh, pond of water that's overgrown with algae and you can hardly walk through it without getting tangled up in it and pulled down by it or stuck in it. The third hindrance is sloth and torpor when it's translated by the good English from England. 
1880. <laughs> what the right English translation is is an interesting question. But I think it's important to understand and appreciate that these hindrances, which we don't need to take personally, that we all have them. So it's not like a you, like suddenly the fact that you discover that you have sloth and torpor and now, you know, like you may, that makes you unique. <laughs> you know, in first person human history who has it. And I mean, these are really common. And it's really wise, as Jill said, not to take them personally. But at the same time, it's helpful to understand also that sometimes they function as strategies to try to avoid challenges, try to avoid being present for what's difficult to be present for. This life of ours is difficult, hugely difficult. I I don't want to kind of, I, I certainly don't want to imply in any way that living a human life is easy. And it's in the it's a, a there's large challenges that some of us face from time to time, or all the time. It can be too much, it can be frightening, it can be overwhelming, it can be discouraging. And so that the impact of that sometimes is we shut down. Sometimes we get drained. Sometimes we go numb. Sometimes we freeze. Sometimes we feel kind of just completely like um, uninspired, unable to kind of get out of bed, unable to be interested in the next breath in meditation. How many breaths am I supposed to watch? (laughs) I have something that I call cardboard breath. Every once in a while, there it is, my cardboard breath. There's nothing beautiful about it. There's nothing pleasant about it. It's just like, I don't know, I associate cardboard with completely, like, try to eat cardboard and that doesn't work. You know, it's just like completely like dull. And and so, so, so sometimes I, I've learned, oh, there it is, my cardboard breath. <laughs> and I've learned not to worry about it. Okay, that's what it is now. And now my job is just to keep, and then it's a little bit like manual labor meditation. Okay, well, <laughs> I'm doing my manual labor. <laughs> this is what has to be done. And, uh, and I just, okay, I got to do it. And uh, there's not much, no rewards in doing it. You know, <laughs> there's no wisdom. There's nothing. It just, <laughs> but it's just what it, what it is. But I've learned just keep practicing. Trust. I trust the practice more than anything. Just keep doing it. It feels like manual labor. And then at some point it shifts. Ah, okay. Now it's better. But this kind of shutting down, getting dull, quiet, you know, shutting. Sometimes it's almost intentional. It's just too much. It's a kind of, sometimes it's a resistance. 
I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to participate. And that, you know, it's a common thing in life. You know, we feel so discouraged or disappointed. Sometimes it feels like it's an injustice and we just feel like giving up or resisting or just kind of dragging our feet and not participating. But it's a strategy. It's not a not doing something. Even though there's a lot of not doing in sloth and torpor, it's kind of an putting a blanket over a greenhouse and all the plants kind of start to kind of get weak because there's no light coming in. There's something that's damping us down. And that's very important to understand so we don't believe the sloth and torpor. Don't believe it's the same thing as being tired. Don't believe it's the same thing as being kind of exhausted, which can happen just physically, you know, and end of the day, long day of practice, and you're tired. That's not, that's not the same thing as sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor is something that can disappear in an instant, Just give yourself a really good fantasy, you know, like the, just like you know, really juicy fantasy. Like, just like keep it in your back pocket for when you have really sloth and torpor. You have all the energy you need. Only do this as to prove me right. <laughs> Don't do it as a just to have a good time. So it's something we're doing, and why, why it's important is it, it's kind of like dampening it over. It's part of the reactivity of the a reactive mode when things are too difficult and challenging. And we're reacting against it, away from it. And anything that's part of that reactive world interferes with the inner beauty, interferes with the inner wealth and more importantly, interferes with this gestational energy, this deeper wellspring of vitality that has a very different source within us than the source of reactivity. Very different source than the source of greed and sensual desire, of hostile hostile aversion. And how do we discover this deeper place of vitality? And one way that I think uh, I would like to point out, and we've been doing all along here, that these five hindrances are one one side or one path in a fork. There's something that looks very much like a hindrance, but which is not. Both of them involve becoming still, a stillness. One is a dull stillness, maybe a rigid stillness, a resistance, or a frozen stillness of freezing and fear. The stillness that's part of the beauty, the stillness that kind of makes room for this Dharma vitality to flow through us, is a, is a stillness which is soft, 
gentle. The mind hasn't become immobile, but the mind doesn't move. There's a non-moving without being stuck, without being frozen, without being held in place. Nothing is being held in place. Things are just quiet and settled. I don't know if any of you have noticed, because it's very difficult to notice it when you're inside of a retreat all the time, but if you step away and come back in, you can sometimes feel how still the air has become in a retreat center. The atmosphere has become still. And it works really well if you're not on retreat and you come someplace with a retreat and, and come right in the middle. So it's sometimes like a force field. I don't know what it is. I don't have no theory what, expl- what explains this vibe, this feeling, this atmosphere that's there of the collective energy, collective qualities of practice that's there. But you, you can feel it, a kind of stillness that is nourishing, a stillness that feels kind of healthy, a stillness that doesn't seem to dampen things down, but seems to help us see things more clearly. It's be- it's a be- has a stillness which is beautiful. There's a beauty to it, even though you can't point to it anywhere. Where is that? Where is it? Where is that stillness? So, there is stillness, which is dynamic, a stillness which makes room for this gestational vitality to flow to suffuse us, dharma energy that comes. That it does not come from our reactivity. And so sloth and torpor, the, uh, the word that we translate as sloth, more literally means rigid or stiff. And so there's a kind of kind of a, a stiffness, a rigidity, a, t- a tension of not kind of being stuck. Can't go forward, can't go backwards. Don't want to. But just nearby, close to the sloth and torpor, the stiffness and the sluggishness. Maybe there's some different kind of stillness that's there too. Can you take advantage of the sloth and torpor that to feel your way? Is there on the edges of it or in the heart of it, is there some different kind of stillness, quietness, silence that's, a, that's there nearby? And it might be there because if you have sloth and torpor, you're not spinning out in desires, ready to take on the world, get everything you want. You're not activated by hostility and resentments. And the lack of activation that's in sloth and torpor 
might make some room for you to feel into and sense some deeper place of vitality that's there. And if you do that, you might discover a few different things. One is that deeper vitality might be the grief that you've been running away from. It might be the fear that has been overwhelming for you. It might be the rage that you've never been given permission to feel. And when those things are covered over and bottled up, these very natural forces, strong emotions that we have, it can give, give in, it can cause this sloth and torpor, resistance, giving up, tiredness. But if we listen in the stillness and the silence, get quiet and listen, what else is here? What else is here? What else is being born? What else wants to be known? And it's possible in these states of sloth and torpor, then rather than having techniques to overcome it, the more valuable thing is to turn towards it in a quiet mind, with a kind of quiet and stillness that kind of accepts it enough so that you can listen more deeply. There might be an opportunity in the sloth and torpor because you're already kind of quiet, to move into a different kind of quiet. But it requires something of you, which the practice always requires something of you, which has to do with how you're relating to anything. We talked about that the first night. How you, can you relate to sloth and torpor in a beautiful way? Can you relate to rage in a beautiful way? Can you re- relate to impatience in a beautiful way? What would it look like if the way to you relate to it is not just acceptance? Because that's kind of, I don't know, dull. But what about if you do even better than acceptance? What if you relate to it in a beautiful way, with kindness, with generosity, with care, with gentleness, with openness, with honesty, with a willingness to respect everything, a willingness to respect the sloth and torpor, respect the challenges, so that in that kind of way of being, that beauty, can you, part of it is, can there be a beautiful quietude, a beautiful stillness that allows you to listen, feel, see more deeply what's going on here, what's happening here, What is the deeper vitality that's here for you that is not reactivity, that's not reacting against 
or for, not for or against anything, not resisting, not grabbing, not chasing, not running away, not shutting down. From these kind of survival instincts, the surface instincts, to become still in a beautiful way, a beautiful stillness that begins to allow you to sense and feel a deeper vitality, deeper suffusion of a glow, of a vibration, of a joy, of a happiness, of a harmony, of beauty. Exactly how you will experience it, I don't know. You where there's a fork in the road, and one way is to continue the fork of reactivity, which many people are experts at doing. And the other fork is to do with a leap of faith. With a to do something that some of you probably don't do very often. A leap of faith to go to that fork where you do something beautiful. Beautiful mindfulness, beautiful attention, loving attention, generous attention. A way of attending and being, the way of that you're not chasing and wanting and trying to attain something and make something happen or fix something. These are all kind of reactive ways of being. But what about the way, the beautiful way, and this is where the leap of faith is, to believe it's possible for you to sense and feel
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.